Carl Dergliger says, I love your lectures on Socrates, Plato, and the dialogues, and wonder if you have since read them again and have any different takes on them. Oh, well, yeah, reading the dialogues is a lifetime commitment, like reading the Bible. And uh, when you come to any great work, like Plato's Republic, or like the Bible, or like the Quran, or like the Bhagavad Gita, um, it's truly inexhaustible, you know, in the way that you can never finish listening to Beethoven. There's always something new and undiscovered and uh, fascinating about his music. Same sort of thing with Coltrane, too. I think that, you know, he's a gift to us from God, and uh, you never get finished listening to his message, or at least I never do. Now, with regard to Plato, uh, I guess I was in my mid-30s when I cut those lectures back in the 90s. I forget exactly when. And uh, I had been invited to do this by Tom Rollins, who was running the teaching company back then. And I had finished at Johns Hopkins, and I was in transit. I was going to take up a position at Princeton in September. And that summer I spent in California at the Huntington Library, which is a beautiful resource and a lovely place. And it's close by uh, Caltech, which is also a very interesting place because there's that scientific focus combined with the beautiful works of art and the beautiful gardens and the vast libraries at Huntington that make for a very pleasant life. Uh, while I was there, I reread the dialogues. And uh, I had read them before, and uh, I've read them since. Uh, I've done a cover to cover several times on Plato. And uh, when I cut those lectures, I really didn't have the, uh, the ability or sufficient intellectual strength to uh, crack some of the dialogues. They were too much for me, I have to admit that. You know, uh, that's why I left some important dialogues out, because I like, I'd rather get it right than just stick something in. The dialogue called the Euthyphro is omitted, and uh, in the intervening years I have read it and reread it, and uh, I'm increasingly impressed with it, but also uh, I think I know the answer or at least I think I solved the problem, or at least I think uh, I was shown the solution to the problem by teachers, all my teachers in a way. So here's the deal. Euthyphro is on the way to uh, accuse his father of murdering a slave. This is a capital offense in Greece. In other words, he is uh, trying to orchestrate the murder of his father. He says he is doing this because in his job as a religious functionary, he has learned about the gods and ceremonies and rituals and blood pollution and similar matters, and it's his civic duty to uh, turn his father in for the murder of a slave who had committed uh, a crime. This is a pretty dicey case, but it's also even if it is the right thing to do, it's doing it for the wrong reason. The real reason that Euthyphro is trying to kill his father is because 
he uh, wants to inherit his patrimony and is willing to kill his father for it. Now, the irony here is that he's meeting Socrates, who's also going to the law courts, and he's going there for the first time. Now, remember, at the end of the Apology, when Socrates says, oh, and one more thing, members of the jury, if you ever see my sons behaving as badly as you behave, please reprimand them and tell them to live a virtuous moral life and stop pursuing the inferior kind of goods that they think are worthwhile. In other words, at the end of the Apology, Socrates points out that he has been the father of the city of Athens. So the city of Athens is also committing parricide because they are killing, under pretense of law, the father of the city. So there's a, a kind of homology between Euthyphro and the Athenian people. In both cases, a man is pretending to be righteous and religious and engaged in the grossest kind of evil that goes back to the early primitive accounts of moral obligation. And he's going to kill his own father, just like the Athenian people. So it's ironic, of course, that he's a specialist in religious matters. And Euthyphro, in addition to that, is pretty stupid. And he's not very uh, subtle. So Socrates begins the discussion by asking if uh, the gods like things, and that's what makes them good, or are things intrinsically good, and thus the gods like them? In other words, it's a question of whether gods create goodness arbitrarily through an act of will by latching on to certain things that are arbitrary or, or in their moral valence, or the gods know that which is truly good and that which is truly evil, and he knows all the gradations in between them. And thus, the gods love what is good because it is good. It is not good because the gods love it. This is a tough problem, and it doesn't get a solution in the Euthyphro. My view is that Plato gets it right. Um, the gods love what is good and right because it is good and right. The gods are not composed of will, but of knowledge. And of course, what I mean by the gods here will ultimately coalesce into one god in the case of Plato's form of the good. Now, now let me come back to the ultimate question of the Euthyphro. Euthyphro says that he's pious, he's a religious specialist, and uh, Euthyphro says that uh, it's a pious thing to accuse your father of murder and get him killed. Socrates is not so convinced. So they launch into a discussion of what is piety. And the reason why I didn't do this in my lectures, uh, I don't know how many years ago. Well, what was this? I think it was 30. 30 years ago, yeah. I mean, this is, that's a, a lifetime of thinking and not thinking. Um, The insight that I've gotten is that I think I understand what piety is now. And I didn't understand it back then. And because I couldn't give an account of it which would pass, you know, the withering Socratic questioning, um, I wasn't inclined to cover it because I really just didn't have the chops. 
I didn't know how to hit that a note that high. And now uh, I do, you know. And uh, in a way, I wish I hadn't found out what piety is because then I'd be able to go, you know, and be happily uh, skeptical about whether um, platonic forms exist at all. But I think they do uh, because I met one once. Uh, <laughs> and it's the form of piety. So Socrates wants a, a definition of piety. And as we know from the Mino and also from other logical works, Socrates' idea of a definition is a mathematically rigorous definition. In other words, every X has to have this property and only X has to have this property. In other words, there's a one-to-one, 100% Venn diagram overlap. Okay? So, what is piety and what will give us that overlap? My best understanding is this. Piety is doing honor to God by being of service to men. That is all. This question comes from Martin Foster. He says, the differences, pros and cons of studying philosophy at university versus studying personally. Okay. Um, depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? If you're interested in becoming professor of philosophy, that PhD from a high-end uh, program is uh, necessary. It's unavoidable. And the, but the problem is going to get a PhD, certainly from uh, uh, a less than uh, famous program or from a famous program but just not standing out among your peers, um, that's going to lead to the academic treadmill. So uh, we have more people with PhDs than we have jobs, and we're going to match that with the increasing proletarianization of professors. So there's a great danger that you'll be sucked into the adjunct world, which is uh, you know, the final phase in the neoliberalization of the universities. Uh, which means that you don't get tenure, you often don't get health care. Uh, what you do is get an hourly rate that'll keep you uh, working for Uber part-time. So if this is a career decision, it's a bad idea. Um, if you're really smart and you have something to say, um, the only way to get an education is to educate yourself. When you go to a university, you're getting them to validate the fact that you've educated yourself. But the fact of the matter is, and we usually try and keep this uh, a secret among the guild, is that you learn more from the people you go to college or graduate school with than you do from the professors. All right? Uh, so it's having that peer interaction that adds something very useful uh, in intellectual development. Uh, you can get pe these will be people who will be who will feel comfortable telling you you're wrong if it's any kind of respectable program, and so uh, that will make intellectual life a contact sport, and it will toughen you up. That's the advantage of going apart from the career element, which is a very poor mot motivator. Um, a second problem is that the intellectuals 
uh, in the soft sciences, and for the most part that includes philosophy, although I might bracket out uh, people who study the philosophy of logic or the philosophy of computation or the philosophy of mathematics, uh, because that hasn't been uh, uh, scandalously uh, prostituted for political ends. Um, history, philosophy, literature, religion, uh, politics uh, have all been bent in the last generation or two, and they're deeply corrupt. They represent the will to power of intellectuals who are irrelevant to the uh, technical revolution that's going on around them. The, of late, the, the main technical revolution has been cybernetics. In addition to that, something that's going to give it a run in the long run will be biotechnology and uh, the engineering of DNA. But to these great human projects, um, soft science intellectuals like professors of sociology are essentially irrelevant. And so they're full of rage and they're uh, interested in destroying the society that, uh, that makes them possible. So uh, one of the problems I have with university culture is that it's claiming to advance the, uh, the welfare and the interests of the oppressed, however you define that, in terms of race or sex or whatever. But, in fact, what they're really doing is using these groups who are marginalized as wedges to create and increase their own power. Now that intellectuals are connected with the cybernetic world, money is being thrown at them, and a large part of our cultural chaos is attributable to this. So let's step back, you and I, and think about this. My point is, if you want to learn something, you're going to learn it on your own, or you're not going to learn it at all. Yes, there are some advantages, but also some great disadvantages to participate in, in the uh, diseased intellectual culture that we find in the soft sciences at America's universities. Uh, what choice you make about this? If, uh, if, if I had the choice to make, I think I would just spend some time reading find yourself the kind of job that allows you to do it, and then use the internet to find some sort of community where you can have serious discussions about this. It's very important that you take criticism and questions from people you disagree with, and you don't have to troll them on that account. Um, steel sharpens steel. If you really want to be uh, a thinker, then you have to be willing to engage in the dialectic and not take it personally. Here's some advice from a chess player. You don't learn very much, perhaps nothing, from the games you win. It's the games you lose where you can go back and learn something from this. Same is true with arguments. You don't learn anything from the arguments you win or think you win. What you learn, what you learn from is the arguments you lose. And then you have to go back and think, how did I set myself up for that? Why was I thinking in a way that couldn't handle this alternative argument? So uh, 
you'll have to learn to become Socratic. And uh, I like the idea of the living voice in doing that. But we live in a technologically mediated world. What I'm doing now is as close as anything I can find to the uh, living voice. And uh, my recommendation for you is that you should uh, pursue wisdom where you are and with the resources that you have. And it, the mo wisest thing you can do is to live up to the obligations you've made to the people you love. Take your philosophy from there. This next question comes from Ethan Einspenner, who says, how old were you when your intellectual journey started and where do you recommend I start? Any books or specific individuals that you could recommend would be greatly appreciated. Well, um, I started my intellectual journey where everybody starts it. Um, uh, right beside my mother. <laughs> uh, she taught me to read and I liked reading and I liked books. If you have the advantage of someone that loves you and teaches you early on, that's a really great thing for every purpose in life. Um, I've always loved knowing things and I have a genuine disinterest in lots of the things people think are interesting. Uh, so for me, it really wasn't a, a sacrifice to pursue knowledge because I wasn't really interested in any of the, seriously interested in any of the alternatives. Um, and uh, I did it for my own sake, you know. Uh, I, I like being able to help people and help the world, uh, but uh, there's a deep satisfaction in figuring stuff out. And of course, this is uh, an endless process. And you find out how big the word infinite really is. And uh, I'm very happy now you know, that I'm an old man looking back at my life. I'm very happy uh, devoting my life to knowledge. Uh, you know, I don't regret that. How do you start? Well, you start with love. Um, one of the things that Socrates teaches is that knowledge is deeply erotic. It touches on a really deep desire in people that they don't know that they have. It's a desire for coherence and wholeness. It's a desire for uh, comprehension. And uh, once that gets ignited, it burns like magnesium. And that's what the platonic dialogues are capable of doing, at least for me. Now, it's not just the platonic dialogues, but I think that would be a wonderful place to start. Now, there are other very useful books. Uh, I think the best single book, particularly for somebody that's starting out, a young man that's trying to turn himself into something, uh, something great, uh, would be The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Um, we live in an age in which everybody's trying to be more and more and more sensitive and find more and more and more reasons to be outraged and oppressed. I have a different thought. Take a trip to the Grand Canyon 
And, and I, here I'm not talking about a virtual trip. I'm not talking about any digitally mediated experience. I mean, change your location to the location of the Grand Canyon. And look at it. And let your idea of big change. It gives you a great sense of how important you really are. And how important I really am. One of the uh, necessities of growing up is to realize that however powerful your impulses may be in the larger scheme of things, um, your disappointments are almost impossible to see. Uh, there's a wonderful part in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where somebody gets a chance, where people are given a chance to look in some machine that shows them where they fit in the real universe and it causes the people who see it to go mad because no one can cope with it. Well, I don't think that it's quite that extreme. Um, my finite mind is uh, doing its best to be congruent with God's infinite mind. And I'm not doing a great job, I have to admit, and I never have. But, uh, the Grand Canyon is the alternative to a lot of bullshit talk. And uh, stimulating books. It could be Plato, but it could equally well, well be Shakespeare. All right? If Shakespeare speaks to you, particularly if you're a native Anglophone, uh, Shakespeare is a great place to start. Um, there are so many authors that are valuable it's hard to go wrong. The point is to be persistent. What I, one, of the time, uh, one of the things that I used to <laughs> hurt my students' feelings with was I used to often come into a seminar room and ask the non-rhetorical question, when are these books scheduled to read themselves? And the answer is never. And these books do not get read unless you read them. And that means that you actually must chop out sections of time in your life to read them with. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I used to uh, announce cl begin classes with that question. And everybody knew what that meant. It meant that I was not satisfied with the thoroughness of their reading. Here's the deal. That's, that's a good itch to give people. Don't be satisfied with the thoroughness of your own reading. It's an easy thing to do at 17 years old, right? Uh, as I've gotten older, I've gotten less sure of certain things and only sure of a certain, of a very limited number of things. And uh, that winnowing out process can be uh, disenchanting, but it can also be uh, revelatory because the things that last and the things that stay will be the things that you accumulated at early phases in your life. So at this point in your life, I think you should read literature. Right? So the great Russian novelists, if you haven't made them your own, you should. Shakespeare's plays, Moliere's comedies are absolutely angelic and whenever you want some downtime from the real uh, intellectually demanding stuff like Kant, uh, may I recommend Moliere, I just love Moliere.
Uh, I also love Oscar Wilde. Uh, I have a thing for comedy, and uh, I think comedy is cognitive when it's done right. And I think that uh, Moliere's The Misanthrope is the second greatest comedy ever written after the greatest, which is Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. Um, I wish you luck, young man, but it's not just a question of luck. What you have to do is make a decision, and then, and only then, having made the decision to direct yourself in one, your life in one direction, um, get focused, all right? Because that's the only way you're going to make any real progress. So, uh, what it means is, is that you have to look inside yourself, see what your resources are, and then set out on the journey. Uh, and you'll learn to, to use the compass as you go along. And Neo0618 says, Professor Sagru, how would you describe your personal life philosophy? Which great philosopher do you most closely emulate? Yeah. Um, well, I've gone through a lot of uh, phases in the development of the way I think. And, uh, you know, I think that anybody who spends a lifetime as a professor is likely to do that. Uh, I would say now, you know, when it comes out, I'm a kind of, I'm a kind of hybrid Christian Platonist. I know that may sound strange, but uh, my thinking is something along these lines. I spent a lifetime looking at the history of philosophy in the West. And then, trying to add to that as much as I could with a knowledge of the belief systems of the uh, great world civilizations. Uh, so I would include China, Persia, India, but also uh, uh, the Mesoamerican indigenous civilizations. Um, their mythology turns out to be quite interesting. So I've looked around various uh, examples of, our, of human belief systems and tried to make sense of them, put them in historical order. So uh, the best I could at the end of it is this. Um, what we need is some braiding together of love and rationality. And that's why uh, I hear what Socrates has to say, and I hear the, the, the message of Jesus. Um, I think they're both right, but in different ways. Uh, the Western tradition of rationality, uh, which realizes itself in natural science, among other things, is uh, an extraordinary contribution to human life. But it has nothing in it that's comparable to the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, which is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, not only is there nothing similar to it in the Greco-Roman tradition of philosophical rationality, um, there is much that is inconsistent with it.
So, uh, for example, the Christian idea of uh, just war is a half step toward realizing the latent ideal in Christianity, which is deeply pacifist. This pacifism doesn't just happen between states. A lack of enmity between people, where people give moral consideration to others that they don't know just because they're there. That's what the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan is about. And uh, I wouldn't want the Western intellectual tradition without it. The, Athena, the tradition of Athens has, so far as I can see, given us no reason to embrace universal compassion. It doesn't mean that I mean to disparage the tradition of Athenian and later Enlightenment rationality. What I mean to do is to say that it has its limits. And one of the limits it has is the insights of the great spiritual teachers. And here I'm talking not just about Jesus, but about the Hebrew prophets, or about Zoroaster, or about the Buddha. Um, what they do is uh, teach a lesson that can't be reached on the assumption of simple self-interest. There's got to be something bigger. There's got to be something more. I'm not sure there's any way of showing this through any rational procedure. But I think it's true, our concern with other people and our concern with the world in general. And, uh, yeah, I, don't, I would want to keep the mythos along with the logos. I want uh, to have both Athens and Jerusalem. Kierkegaard will eventually come around and say, take a stand, put up a shut up. And when I have to, uh, I'll take the Christian side of the uh, wishbone. I'm going to pull on that side. And the reason why is that uh, I can imagine Christianity sprouting some rationality. I can't imagine rationality sprouting love. And he had a second question. It says, I love your lectures on Nietzsche, but on the subject of him possibly being a proto-Nazi, in one lecture you say you're doubtful, and in the other you agree with the idea. What's your final stance on the issue? Okay, look, much of this is rhetorical tap dancing, right? Particularly on the part of Nietzsche's, of Nietzsche's contemporary and... Uh, contemporary defenders and defenders from a generation ago too let's dance the first problem is what question are we trying to ask question one or one way of looking at this problem one way of formulating it as a question is would Nietzsche, would Nietzsche have liked 20th century anti-Semites in Germany and the answer of course is no he would have loathed them they are bourgeois mass men. There's not a hero among them. Even though Hitler pushes around the German bourgeoisie, um, he's a diminutive kind of ubermensch. So Nietzsche himself would have had nothing but disgust for 
the anti-Semites. Now, some of Nietzsche's defenders have decided to construe this in the formulation that Nietzsche himself was not an anti-Semite. And I'm saying, well, that's one possible way of doing it. But let me take it a different way, okay? Um, Nietzsche was an uh, an anti-Semite. He was also a proto-fascist. Would Nietzsche have admired Mussolini's fascist party? Undoubtedly not. As he says in The Gay Science, there are only half a dozen men in any given century that are worth anything at all. Everyone else, in other words, has the moral valence of ants, and you feel bad about killing them in the same way that you feel bad about treading upon ants. So, one, another way of asking the question, was Nietzsche an anti-Semite, or was Nietzsche uh, a fascist, a proto-fascist, is to change the focus from Nietzsche, because you have to remember, if we frame the question as, would Nietzsche have liked X, put, uh, insert your group of people, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> Why? Because he thinks the vast majority of all people have zero moral significance. <laughs> and that's the fact of the matter. So, one way of framing the question is, is Nietzsche an anti-Semite? Um, would be to ask, would Nietzsche like them? And the answer is clearly no. But that's the that's the way in which to frame the question so as to move so as to uh, undo the connection between Nietzsche and and uh, fascism or anti-Semitism or Mussolini's fascism as well. How about this? Uh, Hitler himself was an admirer of Nietzsche. Did he understand Nietzsche? <laughs> Almost certainly not. On the other hand, Nietzsche wrote, was one of the great things about his anti-rationalism, he wrote, I write in order to be misunderstood. <laughs> and you got to like the, um, the, the way in which Nietzsche deploys himself poetically. Um, Nietzsche was very important in the Nazi party generally. Alfred Rosenberg explicitly, you know, the great Nazi, or great important Nazi ideologist um, makes that very clear. But consider the fact that as a birthday present, Hitler sent Mussolini a complete set of the works of Nietzsche. Now, am I to think that he sent the complete works of Nietzsche to Mussolini on account of the lack of influence that Nietzsche had on Hitler. See, that doesn't strike me as being at all plausible. But look how we're changing the question. Instead of asking, would Nietzsche have liked Hitler? Of course he wouldn't have. Would Nietzsche have liked the Nazis? Of course not. We're changing the question is to, did Nietzsche write things that were easily employed by... Nazi apologist? Well, yeah, he did. Was he the object of veneration among fascists and anti-Semites? And the answer is yes. Would Nietzsche have liked any of these people? No. But let's re- let's re-examine the idea of what counts as being an anti-Semite. Would Nietzsche have, if the standard is approving of German anti-Semites in the middle of the 20th century, well, and that's a really low standard. That is like uh, jumping out a basement window. Of course, Nietzsche doesn't like them. 
But let me try another standard uh, on a different higher level. Would Nietzsche have any moral reason for objecting to the extermination of, say, uh, the Jews or the gypsies or the disabled? And if the answer is no, well then, I view his, his anti-Semitism, Nietzsche's anti-Semitism, as part of his more general misanthropy. If you can't think up any moral reason not to exterminate large segments of the human species, um, I think you're plausibly called <laughs> uh, an enemy to that segment of the human species. Everyone that's not a hero, everyone that's not an ubermensch. Nietzsche would step up, I think, and say, yeah, I am. On the other hand, his apologists tend to frame it differently so that the fact that Nietzsche was so beloved by anti-Semites and that he was employed by anti-Semites and that he was so beloved by fascists and that he was, in fact, employed by fascists, that can be ignored because that's the question that they fail to ask and, of course, fail to answer.